0: Thank you for this privilege that we can gather as the people of God. It's been purchased for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, now as we hear the word preached, we pray, Lord, that you would incline our hearts towards your testimonies. That you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things found in your word. Lord, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. That you would satisfy us this morning with your loving kindness that we know supremely through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Back in 2001, as part of a pastoral internship obligation, I was required to spend my summer with a North American board, mission board church plant in Richmond or Frederick, Maryland. And so Heather and I were going to go to Frederick, Maryland, and we were told that we would have our own apartment that summer, but at the last moment, the apartment fell through. And so we learned that we would be spending the summer with a family in that church, a family of four who lived in a small two-bedroom apartment. Now, the idea of spending an entire sermon in the same space with a family of four, and we were newlyweds at the time, was not appealing. And my complaints got back to the pastor of that church, and he called me. No doubt, underwhelmed, with his first impression of me as he should have been and I don't remember anything in that conversation except for this one line he quoted T.S. Elliot and he said Brian to become what you're not you must go in the way in which you're not and that line Impacted me then, as it continues to impact me today. To conceptualize this, imagine you're an athlete who who wants to perform at a high level, but you're physically weak. So the coach takes you through a very strenuous strength and conditioning program. He takes you in the way in which you're not, so that you can become what you are not. And so it is with every believer here in God's economy. God, through his son, has come to save us. And there is this objective saving event that happens at the cross and in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus where where Christ takes the wrath that we deserve. He pays the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And he, he received the wage. Then he was raised from the grave, reversing the curse on sin for those who would believe. And we are saved by that event once and for all. It is by grace you have been saved. But there's also this subjective, progressive aspect of salvation. Where God, through the Son, by the Spirit, rescues us from sin our present sins that we commit in the flesh. He comes to rescue us essentially from ourselves. And conflict with others is one of God's mysterious and counterintuitive ways of rescuing us from ourselves. The Lord uses it to get us where he wants to take us before we die. Conflict with others. David was no exception. David was a man after God's own heart. We've seen that in the text. He had been anointed to be king over Israel. And the spirit of God came upon David and the text tells us in 1 Samuel 16:13 that the, the spirit would remain with him forevermore. But we find him here in the wilderness between the promise And his exaltation is king. And though we have already seen cracks in David's character, we've also seen a pattern of victories, of faith, tremendous faith, and repentance when he sins. But the Lord is never content with our present Spiritual maturity C.S. Lewis in his book mere Christianity gives us insight to that That thought he says that is why We must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time as believers When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected He often feels that it would now be natural If things went fairly smoothly When trouble comes along he's disappointed these things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days But why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level Putting him in situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Isn't that a great statement? And so the Lord has so much to teach David that he continues to lead him in the way that he is not so that he might become what he is not and that includes that way includes at the very beginning of our text losing his mentor that is the context in fact of the entire chapter notice in verse one now Samuel died and all Israel Assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. The fact that there's only one verse given to Samuel's death, I think, is quite remarkable. It reminds us that no matter how significant a leader might be, no individual is indispensable. One verse given to this great man of God. God's purposes will continue to be worked out through the generations apart from Samuel. It's not a sign, I think, of healthy leadership when the impression is given that when a leader dies or retires or moves on, that the work that he has been leading is going to crumble. And so Samuel's loss was not an insurmountable loss. Having said that, it was a great loss. Samuel was the greatest of Israel's leaders since Joshua. In fact, in Jeremiah 15 verse 1, a remarkable verse, he's given the same status as Moses. And fittingly, all Israel, it says, assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And David's own grief, the loss of his mentor, is certainly implied and frames the rest of this chapter. And perhaps the pseudo-reconciliation that took place at the end of chapter 24 between David and Saul allowed in the providence of God David to attend this funeral without fear of being harmed. Nevertheless, David, recognizing Saul's true colors, didn't stay there in Ramah. Notice in the second part of verse 1 then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, it would not be long before Saul, we'll see it in, in fact, next chapter makes new attempts to, to capture and hurt David. Meanwhile, David has this daily task as the leader of 600 men of providing for them. And chapter 25 is just going to reveal how difficult a task that is. But again, difficult times does not mean you're outside the will of God. Certainly wasn't the case for David. He penned many of his great Psalms during this time. David is being taken in the way that he is not, so that he might become what he's not. Hence, notice in verses 2 to 11 a new crisis. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, this man is characterized by his wealth and by his possessions before we're even given his name. That's telling. Verse 3. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail the woman was discerning and beautiful, and I think the emphasis there is on, his, on her inner beauty, though she doubtless was a physically beautiful woman. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Note Nabal's introduction. The introduction for Nabal starts with his wealth while Abigail's centers on her, her character. That's telling. Uh, Nabal was rich in cattle, and he was rich in goats and possessions, but he was not rich in grace and in faith. In fact, Nabal's name can mean fool in Hebrew. Now, the question is, why would a loving parents name their son Fool. Does that ever cross your mind? Well, the name can also mean wineskin. Of course, abundance of wine in that ancient Near Eastern world signaled human flourishing, prosperity. But Nabal had lived up to the former definition. The first definition, that of a fool. And the irony is he was a member of the clan of the Calebites. Caleb was a, an honorable man in Israel's history. But it also meant he was one of David's kinsmen. The Calebites had, it says, tells us, were behind the, the founding of the city of Bethlehem. And though he was from this honorable clan, he was not an honorable man. One scholar says his life was determined by property. That's tragic. Some have speculated that David had Nabal in mind when he penned that famous verse in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Literally, in the Hebrew, Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. And this is the perfect description of Nabal's approach to life. Nabal was only concerned with himself. We will see that. He had no eschatology. What do I mean by that? He didn't think about any coming day of reckoning. The here and the now was all that Nabal was concerned about the here and the now masked What his heart would have recognized that there's coming a day of death and reckoning? Conversely Nabal's wife was Abigail whose name means my father is joy That's beautiful. My father is joy. And the text describes her as both discerning and beautiful. That's what we need to pray for our daughters. So how could such a woman, though, these are the kind of questions I ask myself as I go through texts like this, how could such a woman marry such a clown? Maybe, even though she was a woman of God, we are all susceptible to that this she perhaps saw that this man by his wealth would offer her some kind of security in life we all long for that security don't we or maybe he had fooled her before they were betrothed and married or maybe he had changed Or. His real colors were coming out or maybe his, her family had arranged it and she was kind of forced to marry him. We don't know, but every woman who is single here should take heed. The new car smell inevitably wears off and you're there to face the payments without the new car smell. That's where Abigail is. Well, clearly at this point, David is unaware of Nabal's character, but he he seems to know that Nabal is a man of means. So we read in verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. During a recently completed stay, in the wilderness of Maon we see that in chapter 23 verses 24 and 25 david had used his men to act as a kind of security force for nabal's servants and nabal's animals we'll see that in verse 16 we'll we'll come to that next week but it's clear that that they had done that they had protected nabal's servants and his animals all the back when they were in that wilderness and so Nabal had profited from David and that's the context of what we see in verse five so David sent ten young men and David said to the young men go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name they're to come in the name of the anointed one I love that that imagery and thus you shall greet him. Peace, shalom be to you. And shalom, peace be to your house. And, and shalom, peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. And again, in verse 16, we'll see more of what they did. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Now, this was not a strange request, because it was customary in those days for shepherds who had benefited from Others in the time of sheep shearing to to bless those people who had assisted them throughout the year. But note in verse 9, when David's young men came, they said to all this to Nabal in the house in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? He clearly knows who David is because he says, Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, implying that Saul was David's master and he was breaking away like a runaway slave. Very demeaning. But verse 11 gives us insight as to why he snubs David. The surface-level sins are never the real issue. The surface-level sins that we commit can always be traced back to unfelt idols. Incidentally, as a side point, that's why felt needs-oriented preaching is like cutting weeds with scissors. You're not dealing with it at the root, the problem. You're dealing with it at the symptom level. The problem we see in verse 11 Note the first person references here. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Now it's very likely, or at least highly possible in my estimation, that Jesus was thinking of Nabal when he gives his parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, which is on the board. Verse 16, Luke 12, Jesus told them a parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Notice the first person language here. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build large ones. There I, I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, So you have ample good, goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. If this was Hebrew, he would say, Nabal. It's the only place in the scripture where God directly calls a person a fool. Nabal. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's why it's foolish. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God Jesus says that the fool is the one who lays up treasures for himself he lives for himself he is self-oriented and is not rich towards God the implication is the believer is rich towards God But in Abel's case, he was laying up treasures for himself. And it was causing a, going to cause a deep conflict here. As believers, the ungodly conflicts that we face with others can invariably be traced back to self-love, selfishness, and idolatry. And it's always painful when we run into this, but maybe consider this, those of us who are rich towards God, and what does that mean to be rich towards God? You recognize that as second Corinthians says, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he were rich, he became poor so that he, through his poverty, we might become rich in God. That's the believer. But those of us who are rich towards God, perhaps we are more self-absorbed than we realize. And the Lord uses others to expose that. That's why conflicts are necessary. And he's going to expose it with David. And it's important for David because Samuel has died. And the Lord has David on the fast track to be king. But currently, it's going to be very clear. David's not prepared for that yet. And that brings us to the conflict in verse 12. So, David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Some of you are like me. And you've got this sinister love for that. You love his reaction. Strap on your sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword, David strapped on his sword. Three times we see the word sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Of course, this is the opposite reaction that we saw in chapter 24 when he had the opportunity to kill Saul but likely because of his reverence for Saul Saul was the anointed one and he's the king and Saul had been had brought David into his residence he had served in his court David is likely like us respecters of persons we tend to be that way so in this particular case he can't tolerate how this man has responded to him and if we are honest many of us resonate with this response this is the kind of verse if I was carnal I would preach at a men's conference put on your sword you could take that out of context and really preach that to paraphrase from a a recent popular vigilante movie David we know had over time acquired a set of skills that made him dangerous for men like Nabal and we want him to use those skills on this fool but why Why is that my response? Maybe it's not your response. It's mine as I'm reading that. I want Nabal to have his. Nabal has spoken about David in this way. Doesn't he know who David is? He's got his coming. Does he recognize this is the the man who took on a, a champion giant with a slingshot? But why am I that way? Why perhaps are you that way? Because we're hardwired for justice. God made us that way. But because of our sin and our fallen condition, our sense of justice, which is good, has been warped. And now we are drawn to vigilantes. Vigilantes is why we love the Vigilante movies. Charles Bronson, we love him. And David was drawn to that kind of approach to life, the Vigilante approach to life. But his reaction here teaches us some important lessons that I think are key. David's response to Nabal follows right after his great spiritual victory with Saul. We tend to be susceptible to sin, temptation, especially after those great spiritual successes. Why? Because we lose our dependency on the Lord. And we become too strong. King Uzziah was marvelously helped until he became strong. Again, C.S. Lewis told Megan I had a a couple of quotes this morning because when I lack the capacity to to be profound, I find somebody who is profound, and then I just quote them. C.S. Lewis said, We must never imagine... That our own unaided efforts can be relied on to carry us even through the next 24 hours as decent people. That's why communion with God is vital. If he, that is the Lord, does not support us, not one of us is safe from some gross sin. Not one of us. Not even the man after God's own heart. Israel's future king. Again, A.W. Pink. No man stands a moment longer than divine grace upholds him. So what is the implication there? We are completely dependent on divine grace like we are on oxygen. If you don't have that, that sense, that awareness, you're already defeated. The strongest are weak as water. Immediately the power of the Spirit is withdrawn. The most mature and experienced Christian acts foolishly the moment he be left to himself. None of us has any reserve strength or wisdom in himself to draw from. Our source of sufficiency is all treasured up for us in Christ. As soon as communion with him be broken, as soon as we cease looking along to him, we are helpless. And that appears to be where David is. David's reaction in this particular case makes it clear he's too strong. He's too self-sufficient. Whereas when... Saul was in the cave. David was living very clearly in in kind of a doxological desperation. But here he has gotten strong at this moment. And he, in his strength, believed he deserved better than that. He deserved to be honored, he deserved to be respected. And with that point in mind, a good gauge for where we are at any moment in time spiritually is how do we respond when someone speaks ill of us or speaks disrespectfully to us? How do we respond? If the cross has humbled us, We'll recognize that the worst things that others can say about us and to us merely scratch the surface of the true depth of our sin. But humility or not, conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable. And if we want to engage in God-honoring conflict, indeed, there is such thing as God-honoring conflict. Jesus had conflict with his disciples, but it was always God-honoring. Jesus never sinned in the conflict. There's ungodly conflict, and there's godly conflict. And if we want to engage in God-honoring conflict in the heat of the moment, we need to do some reflection. And this is critical. As we as a church seek to determine, discern God's will on our strategy for the coming growth. Fish Reveal is growing. The people are coming and we are called to respond as stewards and what that looks like, we don't know yet. But one thing I do know, not everyone will have their preference fulfilled. It's impossible. And so, therefore, there will be disagreements and conflict through this process. Isn't that interesting that this text comes off the heels of our meeting last Sunday night, which was a wonderful meeting. So, in order to avoid conflict, do we just not talk about things? Do we just sweep them under the mat? No. But we need to be prepared. And so, consider these thoughts. So I think about David and I think about his response here, which tends to be a, a natural response for many of us when someone disrespects us or someone disagrees with us, consider this. We need to identify individually what's behind ungodly conflicts in our lives. If it's a desire to be right, if it's a desire to be respected, to be recognized, to have power, to have control, each instance of ungodly conflict allows us individually to see a functional idol in our hearts. As we read this morning, Bill, James 4, listen to this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James asks the question and then he gives you the only right answer. Inspired of the Holy Spirit. This is the answer to the question. Don't you want the answer to the question? That's a very important question. What causes the fights? What causes the quarrels? Here's the answer. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? So one sinner has... His passions at war within him. The other sinner has his or her passions at war. And so you have two warring passions at war with one another. That's a bad deal. You desire. that word desire, epithumia. Epi meaning over. Thumia meaning desire. It's an over desire. You over desire. You desire too much. The desire has taken on controlling status. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. That's behind it. Secondly, identify your default response when conflict arises. We all have a default response. When conflict arises, and that default response is our natural response. It's not the godly response, it's the natural response. How do you respond when conflict arises? You saw it perhaps patterned by those who went before you, your parents, but it's your default response that we use to get what we want. Do we love to fight because we have to be right or because we believe that person is disrespecting me and I deserve better? I deserve better than that. That was David. To that latter point, David's default response, and we'll pick this narrative up again next week, Makes it clear. Now, this is one of the most important points of this whole narrative, the whole Old Testament. David's default response makes it clear that though he would be a great king, Israel and the nations would need a better king than David. Isaiah was very aware of that. By the time you get to Isaiah, he is very aware of the of the davidic narrative. He's also very aware of all the davidic kings, all the sons of David that have followed David. And so here understanding that, he he would prophesy in Isaiah 9 verse 7 that one would come that would end this cycle of sin and idolatry. There would be one who would come who would sit on David's throne. And he, unlike the other kings who preceded him, would establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Pure justice. Pure righteousness. But Isaiah will later say in his book that it would come, ironically, through his suffering. The kind of suffering that only David's suffering could only approximate. And when they came in the Gospels to arrest this king that we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, it's interesting that his followers in Luke 22 said, Lord, shall we strike them with the sword? That's what kings do. They strike with the sword. That's why David said, pick up your swords. And so that's what Peter did. He picked up his sword, and he struck Malchus' ear, the servant of the high priest. In Luke 22, verse 51, it said, Jesus, in response to Peter, no more of this. Nor, no more picking up of the sword. And then he touched Malchus's ear and he healed it The man who had come to arrest him To put him on the cross John 19 John's account of that night verse 11 Jesus then said to Peter Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you see the distinction between David and Jesus, the greater David? One refused to drink the cup. He wanted his enemy to drink the cup. Jesus says, put your swords away. Shall I not drink the cup? What is the cup? Well, it's not popular to say today. It was the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's justice and judgment on sin and sinners vigilantes like us who refuse to be disrespected even for a moment who believe we deserve better than what others give us vigilantes and the Lord Jesus Christ came to drink the cup so that we don't have to why? Because of his mercy. Because he is a good king. He is a just and a righteous king. He's a king better than David. And that mercy, that mercy is the key to conflict. Let's remember that as we proceed through our discussions, as we strategize as a people on how to be stewards of what God is doing here in Fisherville. And thank God, one of the gifts that God has given us to drive home anew, his mercy to us is the table. The table which represents the cup Jesus drank for us so that we don't have to to drink it ourselves. And if you are visiting with us,